Our gospel lesson today gives us a story that is quite vivid. It's intriguing to me that although this parable was told some 2,000 years ago, we have a clear image of what it looks like to be in court, on trial. It's eerily similar to what it looks like in this day and age. I want to tell you a story, a modern day true story, about the difficulties of trial. Perhaps you know it if you've walked alongside someone who's gone through a trial. This story is from Sarah, our new associate for youth and family ministry, and she gave me permission to tell this story. She joined the staff of St. Luke's in 2006 and met there Ramon, a person who was working on the grounds underneath the management of the building and grounds director at the church. Ramon lived with his brother and his brother's four children, who were ages 10, 12, 10, 8, and 5. Ramon's brother is a legal immigrant, but Ramon was not. And so as he worked at the church, cleaning and taking care of the property, the church paid Ramon's brother for Ramon's work. It was understood that after Ramon's brother got his degree and went on to a a paying job, that Ramon would have his turn to apply for citizenship. Ramon needed to pass the GED, and because of particular learning disabilities, this proved more difficult than expected. Sarah worked with him for two years, teaching him English. Jonathan, Ramon's brother, sent Ramon to Oneata for a two-week residence course in the GED so that he could pass it and get his green card. But Ramon did not pass. As time went by, Jonathan, his brother, got a job in Virginia Beach, and so together the family moved there. But Ramon found life difficult there and returned to Stanford, supporting himself as a day laborer and in other menial jobs. In July of 2011, he went with a friend to Dunkin' Donuts in the parking lot, talking with someone about some work. And the police passed through, catching people who were trespassing, and they picked up Ramon and his friend. Ramon's friend was legal, and so was released. But Ramon was incarcerated and sent to Bridgeport, and then to the federal detention facility in Massachusetts. He was interviewed there by legal counsel, aid staff, from the Boston Clinic for Asylum and Immigration. And after much prodding from the interviewer, he finally admitted that there were some people at a church in Connecticut that his lawyer could talk to. So the lawyer called the head of building and grounds at the church and talked to him about Ramon's situation. When Sarah learned that Ramon needed quite a substantial amount of money to post bail, she offered to call his brother. When she reached out to his brother, his brother exhibited hesitancy. He didn't have the money to bail out Ramon. So the Boston Clinic took him on as a client.
When Sarah learned that there was no bail money for Ramon, she asked the clergy staff permission to go to the congregation to raise his bail. At first, there was great concern because the church had paid Jonathan for Ramon's work, and they were worried that there would be a blowback to the congregation of St. Luke's. But one of the priests offered to contact a friend in the immigration services in D.C. and see if their anxiety was founded. He came back and reported that he had been informed that there would be no ramifications for St. Luke's, and so Sarah was given permission to invite the congregation to raise Ramon's bail. The people of the church collected $5,000 for Ramon's bail and got him a bus ticket back to Connecticut. He had a free place to live, and the church supplied him with a cell phone and $50 a week for food. There were a few occasions where they assisted him with a bill with his living quarters, but for the most part, he managed on his own. His court date was set for October 2012. As Sarah continued to be in relationship with him and the people of the church as well, she advocated for him that his court, his, his lawyer be moved to the New York federal court since it was so much closer than Boston. The lawyers at the Boston Clinic tried to figure out if that would be an option, but not hearing back from the judge at all, they said we have to continue in the Boston Clinic. The judge had the liberty to do things like call a hearing for tomorrow, and in fact did do that on one occasion, and they had to hastily find transportation up to Boston for Ramon. There's one occasion where they needed him to give his fingerprints and so Sarah said, well, can't I take him right here? There are places here that can take his fingerprints. And they said, no, he needs to come to Boston to give his fingerprints, and it needs to be done by 5 o'clock tomorrow. There were, it was almost on a quarterly basis that Ramon traveled to Boston to proceed with his legal work. And as October 2012 neared, he found out that his court date was moved to September 2013 leaving him in limbo for yet another year. He continued in his free housing, but it was a difficult place in which to be, and he did not get along well with one of his neighbors, a woman who lived upstairs from him. And in one occasion, in his fury, he busted out one of her car windows. She submitted a de domestic violence report, and he was arrested in Stanford. He had a protection order placed against him, which made him lose his free housing. The church took on his $500 a month rent. The lawyers, who were aware of the extenuating circumstances of Ramon's case, encouraged the people of the church to stick with him, because they would too, and told them that they should not be discouraged by this new challenge. His bail was set at $100. He was ordered in June of this year to take courses in anger management and in alcohol abuse and to start a year-long course that's designed for people who've been involved in domestic violence or abuse cases. This course usually takes a year, but Ramon went to every class as it was offered and completed it just last month. As September 2013 came near, 
just a week before the court date was scheduled, Ramon was given a new lawyer, not the one that worked with him over the two years preceding. Sarah assured Ramon that she would go with him to his court date in Boston. There were a thousand candidates for asylum that applied for asylum the year that Ramon applied, and only 12 would have their cases heard. Ramon was one of the 12. Sarah went with him to his hearing, and she had the opportunity to speak on his behalf. And when she did, after she finished, the prosecution dropped all of its objections. Ramon was granted asylum. And Sarah was told by his lawyer that the difference was her speaking up for him. The lawyer said, the judge was on the fence with this case. But after hearing from you, he sided with Ramon and granted him asylum. I share this story to illustrate what happens when the answer doesn't come quickly. When, as with the illustration given in our gospel lesson, we can grow weary in the waiting, and we can start to doubt ourselves and those around us. Both the ancient story from scripture and the modern day experience in 21st century United States illustrate the wearisome and the doubtful process of stating our case, bringing our need before a judge and waiting for a reply. But Jesus reminds us to not doubt when God doesn't answer quickly, or at least doesn't act, answer as quickly as we'd like. Jesus reminds us to not doubt because God is faithful. Unlike the judge in our gospel story, God cares for God's people. Perhaps you remember Jesus' teaching as recorded in the seventh chapter of Matthew, when he says, who among you if your child asks for bread, will give a stone. Or if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But it's not easy to not doubt. When we are tired or frustrated, the unanswered questions generate more questions. What if this never gets resolved? Or what if the worst case scenario comes true? So I tell you this real life story because of the power of the faith community to support us. It illustrates that the faith community can support us, especially in difficult times. And God has given us this faith community, St. Stephen's Church, to encourage us in our faith, to help us be persistent in prayer so that we can bring all that we are and all that we have to God. This practice of bringing all that we are and all that we have to God, it reframes our understanding of ourselves in this world because you know that the world values each of us by what we produce, what we offer, what we give. But the faith community values us because of the one who created us. Do you hear the difference? 
The world says, what is it you have to offer so we'll know how important you are? But our Christian family says, we know you are important because God has made you. There is no other organization that recognizes people's inherent value. And the faith community is also the only organization with a place for each of us from the very beginning to the very end of our lives. Whether from infancy all the way to our last years, there is a place for each of us in our faith community. Together we mark the transitions in our lives through tradition and ceremony, acknowledging the important things that take place as the years go by. There is no other organization that does this. Next week is Consecration Sunday. It is the opportunity for us as the people of St. Stephen's to make a promise to our work together in 2014. Each of us will have a chance to consider how we support what God is doing in our midst and wants to do with us through our time, talent, and treasure. And next week, we have the emphasis on treasure. In case you don't know, our work together is sustained by each of our contributions. There is no diocesan assistance or some church function or something that gives us the resources we need to do the work of God in this place. We generate that together. And so it is with confidence that I invite you to make St. Stephen's your top nonprofit gift for 2014. Your decision of how much to give is a personal one, a private and confidential decision, one that I hope that you will make with prayer that reflects the depth and width of God's saving work in the world. Because God is in the process of changing lives, and we are God's hands and feet in this world. I take this responsibility that's been given to the church, I take it with great joy, engaging you so that we can look together of what God has for us to do as his people here. And because it is not easy, we come together week after week, claiming the promise that has been made to us in Christ, encouraging one another in the journey of faith, remembering the framework of our lives, that we and others are valuable, not because of what we've produced, but because we have been made by the Creator. We, as priests and people, are St. Stephen's Church. We have this physical structure so that we have a place to gather, and it also serves as a place of hospitality for outside groups throughout the week. And we have our relationships that unite us together. That is what makes us St. Stephen's. So may each of us, as we consider our giving for 2014, may each of us give to the church in a way that reflects our value of our shared life together. May each of us give to the church in a way that recognizes that God has given us a responsibility to be God's hands and feet in this world. And may each of us give to the church in a way that demonstrates our faith that God can transform lives through our trust in him. Amen.